thank you, Jane. Boy, that catches the excitement and energy of Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. It's a time we go back and think about this final week in the life of Jesus. And it begins with what is very clearly, even though it's misunderstood, it's very clearly a moment of triumph. The King is coming. And that's great news. The surprise is that the king came as a savior, not as a ruler. He came as a servant, not as a dominator. We were talking with somebody just before this service about that. The king came in a way that surprised everyone. And God had prepared them for that. Our call to worship this morning is from one of the minor prophets. Four, five hundred years before this event, Zechariah could begin to see it in the future, and he spoke of it. And so we'll use this and then sing uh, these Palm Sunday hymns. Let me begin. This prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, and yet lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Stand as you're able. Hymn number 145 is Hosanna, loud Hosanna. We will go directly into the next one after that as well.
Amen and amen. Have a seat if you would please. Well, good morning. It's always a joy for me to welcome those of you who are here on site to worship. We lift our hearts and voices, gather together uh, in this moment to worship the Lord, but also those of you uh, who are watching on our live stream or on the recording. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit is able to take this moment and that you'll allow us to be a part of that with you. May the grace of Jesus encourage your life and heart, whether Honduras or Ludington or here in Holland, wherever it extends in marvelous ways. It amazes me. It's been a fascinating week. I'll catch you up on a couple of things. One, last Sunday evening, the Rehoboth School uh, High School Choir I led a service, and it was a marvelous time. You would have seen some photos and things in the um, Celebration Inform that went out Thursday night. About 60 high school kids in the choir, about 550 people was the best guess, filling the seats uh, gathered here. And because we're living in a new age, uh, 300 people have viewed it on our YouTube channels. Uh, we turned out to be a good site for the families of the singers to be a part of that, even though they're in New Mexico. So we were able to serve them in that way. Then Wednesday night, we let out all the stops and just said, let's have fun for the Pinewood Derby. Um, we gathered with our cadets and gems and families and uh, celebrated that in, in quite a way. So it's been a marvelous week. We gather here on Palm Sunday to worship. I uh, want to remind folks uh, we have a number of opportunities for children through the course of any service, what we call family-friendly space uh, in the balcony, uh, not where kids can run around, but where they can quietly uh, be a part of the uh, service with a little more freedom to a color in that. For noisy kids, you see, I've got different layers. You can be in the library while the parents watch video. And for absolutely wild and crazy kids, the nursery, all the way down in the basement, where our nursery workers are equipped and able to defend themselves. So it works great. Now, this morning, we'll have nursery downstairs, but we won't have our uh, early elementary. Uh, we'll keep them in for the service. Um, so that will be a part of the difference today. Also today we're having communion and I'd like to take a moment and remind those online to go ahead and prepare, gather what you will use as the communion elements there in your space. And I wanna welcome all who acknowledge Christ. Um, it's my sense that this is the table of Jesus. It's not the table of Bill. It's the table of Jesus. And so he extends the invitation to all who will come on his terms. And that means hearts that are repentant and trusting in him. We'll get into that more as uh, I preach this morning. And for children who will be a part of that, we encourage families to um, help them navigate this experience and grow up into that. So for families and caregivers, I'm always available to help with that um, in any way. As typical, our after service will be coffee and munchies in the library and then a Q&A, a chance to ask me virtually anything you'd like to ask. Um, those of you who've ever, I try to behave in the pulpit down there, not so much. So if you've got a question, obviously I have an opinion. So we can uh, move from there, but that's always kind of an open and positive time. Coming up this week, we're in Holy Week. This begins our Maundy, th uh, our um, 
Palm Sunday on Thursday at seven o'clock next door in the great room. We'll have a communion service with song, with um, scripture. And it's a, the liturgy is actually what you would call a historic tenebrae that we do with candles. And so with each reading, another candle goes out. And it's a way to remind us of the darkness of Good Friday, the cost of the cross and all that that means. Very meaningful time for me. I would remind anyone within the hearing of my voice that you can't go from the victory of Palm Sunday to the joy of the empty tomb without first dealing with Good Friday. To get from point A to point C, you've got to have that moment as well. And then finally, next Sunday morning, uh, Easter. We'll have some additional instrumentation, some special Easter music, a great time to gather and celebrate. So uh, make that an opportunity for you to invite folks, to help them uh, celebrate this time and hear the good news of the gospel. We'll be in this together and thankful for uh, who Jesus is and what he does. Because again, our goal here is to invite everyone those here and those outside our walls to join in the journey of being found in, that's a relationship with Christ, being formed by, that's the Holy Spirit working in our lives through the scripture and following, that's our lives outside these walls, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> We're part of a long historic movement. I want to tell you something, and I read this in uh, Tish Harrison Warren's column in the New York Times last week. The face of the church is changing, both in the United States and across the world. It's interesting to me, increasingly, if you look at the body of Christ around the world, it's more from the Southern Hemisphere than it is from the West. It's more people of color than it is Anglos. The face of the church is changing, but the faith of the church has not. And so it is, we confirm our faith using the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll begin with question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. Let's stand as you're able and we'll sing hymn number 613, Come to the Savior Now.
Amen. And have a seat. It's a marvelous phrase for uh, this Sunday of all Sundays. None who to Jesus came were ever sent away. That's part of the surprise. A king on a donkey, a savior who says come and will not turn away. There's a reason for that and we'll learn more in the sermon. As we come to prayer right now, each of you brings particular things, particular hopes, joys, needs. But I want to take this moment and begin to perhaps plant a seed for a a higher calling in prayer. There's a story that Mark recounts, an event in the life of Jesus, Mark chapter 9. Turns out there's a family and one of the children has a problem. Um, It looks like some kind of seizure, but it's clear from the text that it's not a medical problem because it hasn't been fixed by the doctors with what they have. It's a spiritual problem. At root, it's not an imminent frame issue. There's something transcendent, spiritual. And not all that's transcendent is good. There is transcendent evil that we face in the world. And that's what had intersected with this boy's life for whatever reason. And the disciples, of course, you deal with spiritual problems with spiritual power, but they were not able to bring wholeness to the boy. So they brought him to Jesus. Boy, there's a good phrase. They brought him to Jesus. Jesus speaks a word and the child is set free. That's the heart of God. And they say, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus looks at them and says, you know, this kind only comes out with much prayer. And what we see in Jesus there is his invitation to the disciples who've been with him every day but he's inviting the disciples to take another step in the journey of being formed by Jesus in the life of prayer. How are you doing in your life of prayer? Are you continuing the journey? At the end of this year, will you be deeper? See, that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples to, is a deeper experience of prayer. Had they prayed before? Sure. Was there a deeper experience of prayer and ministry growing out of prayer? That's what Jesus is inviting his people to. Um, This is a pressing thing for several months now. The Lord's been speaking deeply to me in my prayer life. Help people learn to pray. I don't know what shape that's going to take exactly. Still working on that. But let's pray together that God might find a people hungry, find a community pressing in, and that with Christ in the school of prayer, we might learn and grow together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that you've given us from the cross, that in Jesus, you have opened up doorways of adoption to every man, woman, and child on this planet. We thank you for the work of Jesus. That is the culmination of all the scripture And indeed, as we will see next Sunday, the culmination of this special week and all that it means. Thank you that you've called us to more than we might ever know or understand. For eye has not seen nor ear heard, the Bible says. And so lead us day by day as we're found in you. Lead us day by day on the journey of being formed by you. That we might in humility receive all that you are giving And in awe and amazement, be amazed at what you are doing. 
Father, we live in a challenging time marked by deep rivers of despair. Thank you that your grace is our hope and for the hope of those we love. Help us to live by that grace, to bear the fruit of that grace, and to point to the resurrected Jesus at every moment. Thank you for making us a part of Heart Awake Ministries, calling us to be this particular body. Thank you for the history that's brought us to this moment. Help us be faithful in our day. We pray right now for Pastor Aaron and the watershed community where uh, they'll gather to worship you and to uh, hear your word. For Fusion and Pastor JB, Again, as they gather to worship and sit under the teaching of your word. For Mission, where Pastor Florencio will preach to his people in this very place in the Spanish language. Thank you for the bigness of the gospel. But we pray particularly for the community called Celebration. Um, we pray your mercy and grace. I'm going to give you just a moment. Some of you came with uh, prayer needs this day. I know I certainly did, and I picked up some more. Uh, but this is a quiet moment for each person in the silence of their hearts to pray with adoration or confession or thanksgiving or supplication for the issues of your life. Take a moment and commune with the Lord. Father, the needs are so great that we realize they are beyond us. And yet you call us to take your yoke, to put our shoulder to the plow, as it were, not alone, but with you and with the whole gathering of your people. And together we press forward, move in power for those who despair, for those who are tired or grieving, for those who are sick. Father, your word teaches us to pray for those in authority over us. And so in our regular cycle, we pray for the federal level of authority. We pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris, for the Michigan senators, uh, Stabenow and Peters, for area representative Bill Heisinger, and for the Supreme Court, those nine justices but as well for the support and administrators and uh, leaders that work below them, as it were, in the organization chart. We pray that you would move among the civil servants in our federal government, that their heart might be as a river in your hand. Guide them to justice in the land, to hope, um, to honesty, humility. Father, we pray, too, for the work of missions. And I pray for a missionary couple that Hardawake supports, training missionaries and nationals in a closed country. And even as I pray for them by name in my heart, I ask that your gospel go out into all nations of the earth. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord God. Help us to be a people of growing, deepening, ever more focused prayer as we pray just as the Lord Jesus taught us using these words, saying together, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Now, often I'll bring our kids forward, but I'm not going to do that today. I'll ask you to just stay seated because we don't have any place to send you. Uh, I do want to watch together this video for all ages that kind of sets the text and for the moment, and then we'll begin to move into the sermon. Jesus was celebrating the Passover at a meal with his disciples. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and wine from the table and said, this is my body, this is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. After the meal, Jesus and his disciples went into a nearby garden to pray. The disciples fell asleep, but Jesus continued to pray emotionally, asking God for some way out of what was about to happen but saying that it was ultimately up to God. Just as he finished, a large crowd with swords and clubs led by Jesus' disciple Judas came and arrested Jesus. Another one of his disciples, Peter, tried to defend Jesus. He took out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. But Jesus told him to put away his sword and reached out and touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus was led away, beaten and spit on by those who arrested him, and he was taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate told the crowd that he could find no real charges to bring against Jesus, but the crowd screamed out, crucify him, demanding that Jesus be executed. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be killed. When Judas saw that Jesus was going to be killed, he was filled with regret and sadness for betraying him. So he went back to the Jewish leaders, gave them their bribe money, and went out into a field and hanged himself. Then Jesus was crucified, nailed by his hands and feet to a wooden cross. The soldiers and the other people watching mocked Jesus, asking him why he couldn't save himself. Then, even though it was only noon, the sun stopped shining and darkness came over the whole land. Hanging from the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone nearby then gave Jesus a drink by filling a sponge and lifting it up to Jesus on a long stick. After Jesus took a drink, he said, it is finished and died. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. When the guards and the others around Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified, saying, surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was the son of God. And yet on this Sunday, this part of the week, it's 
not yet clear what all that means. It's an interesting week. I want to um, set the theme for us. We've just all lived through an interesting week, haven't we? Um, I'm painfully aware that when we gather on Sunday, we have shared a week as people in which all kind of things have gone on together. And I don't always have the opportunity to, to comment or to speak directly to them. But I always want to bring to you the hope of the gospel, which shapes how we deal with whatever it is uh, we need to deal with. And so uh, I won't be saying anything about uh, particular about the uh, shootings in Nashville, though they were kind of close to me. If you've uh, read through my blog where I reflect on this, I hope you'll see uh, the journey of dealing with grief in the face of something like that. So um, avail yourself, be aware that when I get us together, I want to make sure we always deal with what's important, and that's the gospel, because the gospel changes everything. That's what we're looking at right now in our uh, regular reading. The larger context is the, um, uh, the whole Bible. We've been working through the story. This, these past weeks, we've been in a mini-series that we're calling This Changes Everything, and that's even more the case with Holy Week. For all the confusion that's a part of Holy Week, this is where life on planet Earth gets changed. So we're reading, if you're sticking with us in the story, it's chapter 26, The Hour of Darkness, and you would have seen some of those events in the video. Again, good to refresh our minds on what's going to be a part of this week, because this week, the narrative in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the speed of the narrative slows way down. And where before you get 30 years in about five verses, you get about three years in a number of chapters, now it's almost as if hour by hour. You see the events, you hear the teaching, you see all the different things. Almost 50% of the Gospel of John is focused on this one week, like a memoir would be of such a thing. So I want to kind of slow down and focus on some things. I'm not actually going to look at the Palm Sunday texts, but I want to begin by picturing Palm Sunday and then remembering the faces that are there and fast forwarding almost to the end of the week. And so I'm going to be reading from Matthew and stringing together several different texts to look at a particular person, a particular character who was present through that last week. I'll begin at Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. And it's actually the institution of the Last Supper. And we'll read about one of the events there. It goes this way. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. I want to tell you, everybody there that day dipped their hand into the bowl. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born than Judas. The one who would betray him said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. And then he goes and institutes the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate later at this service. 
I'll pick up the narrative again in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter, and we've seen Peter through these weeks in the gospel. Peter the bold, the alpha bros, replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, you can almost see the, the edge of Jesus' smile curl up. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. The story continues as Jesus heads to Gethsemane to pray. The disciples fall asleep. And then things get tense, beginning at verse 47 again. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Listen to that word. Do what you came for, friend, to the one who would betray him. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Through that night, Jesus is arraigned before the Sanhedrin. And sure enough, Peter does deny even knowing Jesus. Chapter 27, verse 3. When Judas, the one who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we read of these events and we are stunned by the brokenness, by the sin, by the grit that the holy, majestic creator God through God the Son would be incarnate into this mess is extraordinary. And yet there he is, Jesus, who would break bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. What a surprise that your gospel would be worked out, that the tomb would soon be empty, and the message would then go to every tribe and tongue across all of history. Lord Jesus, thank you that even as you gave the Holy Spirit to inspire these texts across centuries, to gather the eyewitness words, and then to preserve these texts across centuries so that now we can unroll them, translate, study, consider. Holy Spirit, I ask that you finish the task by illuminating us, our hearts and minds, to hear your word and to respond. We thank you for your marvelous love. Guard your people from my brokenness. And instead, may the broken mirror of my life shine the great love of Jesus, the Savior. For we pray in his name and all of God's people said together, 
Amen and amen. Well, it's quite a week, and it includes a tale of two, actually 12, but we'll only look at two betrayals. Because you see, both were there. You would see both faces in the crowd at the moment of the triumphal entry, cheering for this coming king, hooray. Both had been with Jesus for perhaps as long as three years, and they had been up close and personal. Both would be identified by others as part of the inner circle that surrounded Jesus. By both, I want to put the spotlight on Peter and Judas. Both, the scripture records, were called by Jesus. That is to say, he took the initiative to name them and to choose them, to invite them to something more than they'd ever imagined. He called them three different ways we see in Mark to be with him, that is to spend time, to see how he acts in different circumstances, to hear not only what he says publicly but privately, to watch his interaction in those off moments. But Jesus would also send them out to preach, and they would see amazing and marvelous things, both Peter and Judas. Indeed, though they had much to grow up into, he would give them spiritual authority. Authority not just on the imminent plane, psychological inspiration, economic impact. They had none, by the way. But he would give them a transcendent message delivered by transcendent God through them. He gave them spiritual authority. Both were there, called by Jesus. They'd heard his teaching. They were understanding in fresh and new ways. And they heard both what he said publicly, what he would say to the crowds, friends, the curious, enemies alike. He would speak publicly. But he would also speak privately, direct and personal conversations. Imagine the opportunity that both Judas and Peter had to walk with Jesus and hear him marvel at the sunrise or ponder the oppression of the Romans. They heard public and private. They heard Jesus teach with the parable of the sower. And they heard privately as he delved deeper, explaining the meaning and application And they saw him and his miracles. Jesus fed a large crowd. It says 5,000 men as well as women and children from two fish. Not only did they see that happen, they were part of it. He told them to distribute that. They saw that happen. They felt it move from their hands. And now both are with him in the upper room at the final Passover. It struck me that all of them would dip the cup. That's what you do in a Passover. They're all part of that. And yet, if you know the end of the story, each of them has a dramatically different, almost contradictory ending. And so we're left to ask a question. And yet, for all this that Peter and Judas had together, there would be this fork in the road, this change, this difference. How could that happen? Well, the first thing in trying to answer that question I want to do is make sure that you realize we don't have information to dig deep into the psychology of Jesus, of Judas. I'm sorry. Um, We don't know Judas's orphan voice. We don't know the inner things that are tormenting him, 
that he hopes to accomplish. It just doesn't record that. Now, we, we live in a psychological time, and folks who are observers of culture will point out just how deeply taken we are by the whole psychology of life. We try to explain all of life with that. Philip Reef, in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, that's an interesting observation on our time, the therapeutic culture. The Triumph of the Therapeutic writes this, religious people were born to be saved. He's writing of another time. Psychological people, writing of our time, are born to be pleased and made happy. We can't get to the inner workings of Judas. Folks will say, well, he wanted Jesus to be king. He wanted this, he wanted that. Maybe. But I encourage you, don't spend too much time there because I'll tell you what I've done when I try to psychologize the text. When I, as a 21st century psychological kind of person, try to figure out the psychology where it's not stated in the Bible, if I can identify their psychology and it's different than mine, I let myself off the hook. Oh, that was his motive, it's not mine, I must be fine. Let's move along here, nothing to see. I wanna to suggest to you that the scripture, inspired by the spirit, leaves space for all of our broken orphan voices. This we do know from the text, Judas would use his role, he would use what he had for his own self-benefit. It says that he was the treasurer, he kept the money bag, that he would dip into it himself. He would often resist investing or the gifts that people brought to Jesus because we ought to do something for the poor. It's recorded in John. But John also says the betrayer did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Friends, Jesus cared for the poor. That's part of the story. You can't change that. And so his followers are called to that same ministry. Remember, Jesus empowered his disciples to feed 5,000 people with two fish. Both Peter and Judas had been a part of that moment. But here, Judas only mentions the poor to serve his own agenda, perhaps his own reputation. He served the band of disciples as their treasurer so that he could dip into it for his own purposes. We ask, and how? Friends, it has to do with this. He served for his self-advancement. Now, quick word, and I wish we could spend more time with this. It's easy, as I've thought about my own life and listened to other people, and we try to make sense of Judas. It was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed. Was Judas just what I'm going to call a prophecy puppet? Oh, it was written, and so now I'm doing with no investiture, with no sense of myself to fulfill this. It says in Acts 1 that the scripture had to be fulfilled, that what Judas did had been prophesied. Was he a puppet? Or could it be that every person who speaks and serves based on their own self-benefit will eventually and in some way forsake those who love them. I don't think 
Judas was a puppet. I think instead that the world that God created and that he intended is a world that was never meant to run based on my self-benefit. And when the driving thing in my speech or in my relationships or my plans, when the driving thing is my self-benefit, things go bad. In a world, in a gathering of 12, there will be those who more or less in different ways serve for their own self-benefit. That will always lead to brokenness and betrayal of something. In the midst of that, we, like Judas, will turn to what is never enough. I want to tell you, when we start acting out of our self-benefit, we'll never be able to turn our desire for self-benefit around to bear good fruit. See, Judas had to discover that remorse was not enough. It would not change his heart. But even more, listen to this in Matthew 26. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. See, Peter and Judas are alike in that way too. Remorse, heartache over what they had done. Have you ever awakened and seen the consequences of your words or a decision you made? Or something you did to another person and suddenly you're flooded with remorse? That's a, a good and honest response, but it doesn't fix things. It's never quite enough. And if you go and return the money, just like Judas did, restitution never undoes the act. Judas takes the money and he throws it to the priests. But you see, the act has already had its impact. And now he can do without the money, but the impact, like a pebble in the pond, with its concentric circles as they spread out, continues. Restitution, though it's an important biblical concept, never undoes the act itself. Finally, Judas is let down by the religious systems. The priests were given the sacrifices of God to point people to the forgiveness of sins. That's what the whole sacrificial system was, a temporary partial pointer to the forgiveness of sins. And instead, they say, what is that to us, your sin? It's your responsibility. Friend, I want to tell you, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the gospel is because I've been so burned and run over in the course of a career by religious systems. I'm thankful for the gospel, which is God at work for the benefit of his people. And I've been a professional part of religious systems, and on a good day, we hit about 80%. On a bad day, we're hitting, and that's about it. Religious systems that should mediate or convey the hope of the gospel often fall short. I'm stunned by how the religious system failed Judas as he wrestled with his despair for betraying Jesus. He would wrestle with his despair and you know how it ends. It's hard and sad and broken. 
Friends, a few days from this moment in this text, Peter and John and Mary, other women, the other disciples, they would all run to the empty tomb. They would run to the tomb. And in a real sense, we all do that. We all must. Now, the location has been lost, essentially, but the historical event is not. It happened. It was real. At, at the empty table of Jesus, at the empty tomb of Jesus, there is a new and grace-based hope that is offered to our despair. Run with your despair to Jesus. That's how Peter would get past this moment. Now, there's a delicate thing I want to touch briefly and in passing. You know how it ended for Judas. And I've sat with families after a suicide, and I want to tell you, it is hard. And I understand the cold logic of moralism in this world, that forgiveness is based on your own asking repentance and works. Fortunately, I'm a messenger of the gospel of God's grace, that our hope in life and in death is that I am not my own, but that I belong to someone else. Friends, everything I read in the scripture about God's grace is that it's bigger than I could ever imagine. We're living in a time marked by deaths of despair. I want you to know that in the despair we all face, there is a hope. And his name is Jesus. Run to the tomb run to the tomb. They did that at the very end of Luke. He includes two eyewitness accounts of post-resurrection. They join him at the table at the two on the road to Emmaus. They join him in Jerusalem. And again and again, we see how he works and meets them, first of all, in the scripture. And the scripture is about him, he teaches them. Then in the table, the communion, here I am, and they meet him. And in the community, even as um, Thomas, John records that Thomas was hesitant to believe until I see the nail holes. They carried him in his doubt. Wouldn't it be great to go to a church where people who were struggling with their faith were welcome? Come struggle here. Because here you have a great opportunity to meet and receive the love of Jesus. We've all struggled. Is there room for one more or two or three? Sure. Because when we run to the tomb, when we join him at the table, the word comes alive the table is more than just bread and a cup, and community is life-changing. He is there. So we run to the tomb, and from there he sends us to go and to share this story. In a moment, we will be at the table. Jesus will be present. But I want you to remember in this moment, he meets us here. And then he said, go. Go means a change of location. Tell everybody of that kind of grace. 
Go to the despairing, the Peters and the Judases, and let them hear of a Jesus who would say yes. How did Peter eventually find his way back in? Through the grace of Jesus. In a few days, there would be a a thief who would say, can I be with you? Jesus said, sure. It's hypothetical, but when you look at that, what do you think Jesus would have said if Judas had laid aside the rope and run to the cross? The Jesus I see hanging there for you and for me would say, just as he did to the thief, come, receive my life. Let it change you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us, that you've taken us as we are. And because of your love, you've received and accepted us. But because that love is so great and so holy, you have called us on a journey of your grace to make us after the image of Jesus Christ. And so we come to you with a hope, not based on ourselves, but based on your grace. Be with us this day as we come to the table. May this be like that table of the final Passover in the upper room where all dipped and then betrayed. May it be as well like that table with the two on Emmaus where they suddenly discovered Jesus, our hearts burned within him. Or later where even Thomas joined them, and could lay aside his questions and concerns. Be with us this day, we pray. Fill us with great hope, we ask, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Friends, as we prepare to receive, I want to use the question from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 80, to respond and consider the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Let's say this together. Uh, and all that it means. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of Father, where he wants us to worship him. So you see, even as we break this bread, we're part of something bigger than just this imminent frame. There's a transcendent truth that is happening right here. It's more than psychology or inspiration or emotion. It's more than tradition or history. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be with us. Friends, in a moment, I'll ask you to come down the center aisle to receive. Um, The bread will be cut in strips. You can carefully take one and then just dip the end of it in the cup. In that way, if you're unable to get up from your seat, uh, we'll have somebody ready to serve. Uh, That's also our gluten-free option. Some people have that medical need. Uh, So as we do this, find your place in your way. Give people the space to process their way in their moment. Um, We will do that. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Paul writes, 
I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on that night Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is now a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. They were in that first moment remembering the Passover. And the Passover was an event in history where the angel of death was released throughout Egypt. And the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, would take a lamb, put its blood on the doorpost. Two things that teaches us that deliverance from the sin and death is something that God provides. You see, there was death among the Egyptians and not among the Israelis, the Israelites, not because the Israelites were better, not because God loves one group and not another, not because one group behaves better than another. No, safety and forgiveness is something that God provides and he provides it because of a substitute. Which families deserved to see the judgment of death pass through their household in Egypt that day? Everyone. But one nation had a substitute. That's the lesson. Life and forgiveness is provided by God and it's given to us as a substitute for what we and then all the world deserves. That's the gospel. Not that I'm better or different or more loved, but that God by his grace at the cross gave himself, the true and perfect lamb, a substitute for each of us. Those are the terms on which we come and receive we don't come this day because of anything in us, but because of the invitation of Jesus. And so we do well to respond on his terms and to receive on his terms, acknowledging our brokenness, giving him the first place of our hearts to shape us in our brokenness, and placing our hope with him to make our life more than we could ever ask or imagine. I invite you with that in mind. Let's pray. Father, take this, which is very simple, and by your presence and mercy, meet us here. Take this bread and take this uh, cup that on the one level of physicality is very simple, but by the promise of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit, meet us in a transcendent, life-changing, powerful way. Thank you for the promises of your word. Holy Spirit, be our hope and guide and comfort, we pray in Jesus' name, and all of God's people sit together. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to invite those who will be serving, if you'd come forward and take a, a tray and another of you the cup. Very good. And we'll settle in. Come and receive the fullness of the love of God. Body of Christ.
Father, when we survey that wondrous cross, we are any number of things, amazed, perhaps confused, 
wondering. But there we see the hinge point of our history where all that had been promised came to fulfillment, where the intention of your creation is suddenly uh, a new and real option. We pray that what was established there would be birthed into our world in increasing ways until finally it's established in your coming kingdom. Make us instruments of your grace in what we do and what we say and how we serve and how we work and study. Thank you that you'd offered us your grace. And thank you for the call to which we respond in that today. Fill us with great hope and change our lives as only you can. This we pray with thankful hearts saying amen and amen. Give thanks with a grateful heart and great expression for the end of um, communion. I'll ask you to just stand and let's, let's sing. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? And amen.